September 6, 1949 probably started out just like many other days in Camden, New Jersey. The busy Main Street was waking up for business. Before the Walmarts and department stores, shop owners ran their shops, each catering to their specific clientele. The butcher, the baker, the milliner, the cobbler. They were probably greeting one another, sweeping their front stoop, perhaps commenting on the weather or how many days before the holiday season kicks in. In a small apartment over one section of the local drugstore, Howard Unruh was finishing up his breakfast his mother had made for him. He brushed invisible crumbs from his brown slacks, slipped on his matching brown suit coat over his crisp white shirt, and tightened the striped bow tie. He patted the loaded Luger P08 pistol in his pocket and left his home for a walk. This would be a day Camden would never forget. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. What you need to know about Howard Barton Unruh is, from the outside, he would be remembered as surprisingly average. Born on January 21, 1921, he and his younger brother James were raised by their mother when their parents separated, and they would grow up their whole lives in the same town. Their father would never seek a divorce, but wouldn't necessarily be around either. Howard was considered polite and shy and did not have big dreams for his future other than someday becoming a government employee. He did average things in his average life in his average community. He would mark average grades and graduate from Woodrow Wilson High School in January of 1939. Entering the workforce with a few odds and ends jobs, he was fascinated with the details of war. World War II was in full swing, and he saved the newspaper clippings and would memorize everything he could, focusing especially on the weapons. He couldn't get enough of the weaponry. In October of 1942, he would sign up to join the Army, feeling an answer to a calling. He was considered a brave soldier and never shirked his duties. He would be a part of the relief at Bastogne in the Battle of the Bulge, among other noted skirmishes. The Auckland Star would write of Howard, quote, As a soldier, Unruh discovered that he was quite a talented marksman. He earned the rifleman rating of sharpshooter, a peg-below expert. It was a revelation, and his interest in weapons grew immeasurably. His colleagues found it impossible to say which was his greatest love, the Bible he read with fervent ardor, or the rifle he field-stripped and cleaned with religious devotion. When, after his training, he joined the war in Europe, it was with the good book in one hand and his M1 carbine in the other, end quote. His officers would recall he would keep meticulous notes of every person's life he was responsible for taking. Dates, times, location, where they were shot, even the condition of the corpse. He would see combat through the armored field artillery in Italy, France, Germany, Austria, and Belgium and would come home unwounded, honorably discharged in November of 1945. He was given several medals for his bravery and service, and would bring home a German souvenir gun he took from one of his victims, 
and other souvenirs he managed to smuggle home. Thus would begin his own collection of firearms and bladed weapons. He would openly confess to his collection to the detectives that asked questions, and even if they tried to goad him into a more deviant behavior because of his fondness for weaponry, he explained calmly it was his hobby. When he came home, he found odd jobs working in a printing press and then as a factory worker making parts for the new Ford cars. In September of 1947, he thought he might try going back to school, so he applied and was accepted to Brown's Preparatory. He took just short of two terms there before attempting to tackle a pharmaceutical education at Temple School of Pharmacy in September of 1948 using his GI Bill. He would drop out before the end of the year. His life would be categorized by some, as before, as uneventful. Howard's brother chose to move on to the married life, while Howard himself chose to stay under his mother's care. Those around him admitted he seemed to be a mama's boy, as he escorted her on Sundays and during the week to church services. The pastor at his Lutheran church would say, quote, I always thought of Howard as a soft-spoken young man. He came to services regularly before the war. After the war, he came mornings and evenings regularly for about a year. About three months ago, he stopped entirely, end quote. The pastor's wife called Unruh, quote, the mildest type of man you could meet, end quote. His monthly allowance from the military probably helped the small household function a little easier when added to the minimal amounts his mother Frida made from working at a soap factory, and it incensed him when people would assume that he was living off of his mother's meager income. His mother, brother, and church friends noticed a strangeness about him since he came home from the war, and this was before PTSD was even acknowledged. The problem was, that Howard was not the same man that went into the army. He was lean and strong and trained in methods of warfare. He had taken people's lives and was suddenly told to flip a switch and to go back to his former civilian life. And maybe he even tried to do just that. Perhaps he could have continued on into average adulthood, but there were new things that now mm, bothered Howard, and he just couldn't seem to let them go. For example, the building next to his was relatively new. This was the barber's building. He'd say, quote, I had trouble with the barber because in building his store next to our place, he excavated for the cellar and spread dirt over the vacant lot to the rear, which increased the rise of the land and prevented the free drainage of heavy rainfall. And as a result, the water was diverted into our cellar, flooding it, end quote. About another neighbor, he'd say, quote, then there was the shoemaker, who not only buried considerable trash in the backyard close to our property, but also kept throwing trash over into our yard on many occasions, end quote. Even when people complained he wouldn't do anything to fix it. Quote, he always had some kind of excuse that it was somebody else's fault, end quote. He had issues with the tailor and the restaurant owner. They used to, quote, hang out there at their corner in front of our place, making remarks as I passed. One time, the restaurant owner told them that I had been carrying a gun and wondered why I hadn't been picked up, end quote. Another time, he believes he heard them say, quote, let's give him a chance to use his gun, end quote. He would write in a notebook that he believed the tailor to have begun a rumor saying, quote, he saw me go down on somebody in an alley one time, end quote. 
He confessed that these things have been turning over in his mind for the better part of two years, and not just in his mind, he kept an ongoing record. Quote, I had an idea in the back of my mind that Mr. Cohen was butting into my business, end quote. That would be his neighbor, Maurice Cohen, who also happened to be the druggist and drugstore owner of the shop next door. Quote, I had built it up in the back of my mind that he had been saying things about me, different things detrimental to my character, and back at the time I had been dealing at his store, and I had stopped dealing there for reasons he had shortchanged me five different times. Twice I brought it to his attention, and the other three times I said nothing, end quote. His wife also started complaining that Howard was too loud and that he should stay off their small strip of grass. Howard's mother, Frida, had a gate made at the very back of their property to which I can imagine all connected at some point, and you really couldn't go out the back without stepping on someone else's property. Frida chose to cut out a small section of their back fence to put in a gate to keep her son from getting on the Cohens' property. This new gate would have him trespassing on the Hermes property for a couple steps until he reached the alley, but hopefully they weren't going to complain. Hoping the Cohens had nothing else to complain about, imagine Howard's ire when he came home to find the brand new gate missing. He was furious and convinced it was a neighborhood conspiracy to make him look foolish. He had been keeping a small diary about all of his grievances. He was detailed in his notes, and besides some, he wrote abbreviated notes. R-E-T, which meant retaliate. R-E-T-W-T-S, which stood for retaliate when time suitable. And D-N-D-R, which meant do not delay retaliation. Finally, after thinking about it and stewing about it, at 3 a.m., he decided he was going to do something about it about all of it. Everyone just got upgraded to DNDR status. At 8.20 that morning, Howard Unruh joined his mother downstairs for a bowl of post-toasties with milk and sugar and two fried eggs. In one pocket he had a fountain pen, tear gas gun plus cartridges, and in the other pocket he had the P08 Luger and a knife. At 9.30, he left his house and walked toward the shoemaker's shop. At the corner of Harrison and 32nd Street sat a bread delivery truck. Two kids played nearby. The driver appeared to be sorting through some papers. Howard pulled the gun from his pocket, pointed it at the delivery driver, and pulled the trigger. Luckily, the driver was able to dive out of the way. Quote, He missed me by inches, the unidentified driver later told reporter Roxy DeMarco. I was seated in my bread truck going over my records and he walked up and shoved a pistol through the door at me. I thought it was a holdup. I tumbled into the back of my truck among the bread boxes. He fired one shot and thank God it missed me. End quote. The bread man saw the two children in the road so he grabbed them and hid them in the truck. He then drove down the road to warn others, but it was too late. Howard continued on and opened the door to the shoemaker's shop and entered walking all the way to the back. The Luger, now comfortably in his hand, he fired at the shop owner and watched him fall to the floor. Howard recalled, quote, He had a funny look on his face, staggered back, and fell to the floor. I realized then he was still alive, so I fired into his head, end quote. 
27-year-old John Pillarchuk would be his first victim. A small boy was sitting behind the counter, but he was left unharmed. That boy was Ron Dale, and 50 years later he would recall the blast from the gun, Unruh staring at him. Quote, he looked right at me, and then he left and went to the barbers, end quote. Howard calmly left the shop and went next door to 33-year-old Clark Hoover's barber shop. Howard would recall there were others in the shop, but pointed the gun and shot the barber when he fell. He repeated his last action and shot him again at close range. What did not register with the assailant at the time of his confession was that he also shot six-year-old Oris Smith, who was sitting in front of the barber on a hobby horse getting his hair cut. Howard did not remember taking his life. The boy's mother's life was spared. Howard would remember that he aimed for the chest and then went for the headshot. Unfortunately, little Oris was at chest level. Frank Engel, owner of the tavern on River Street, told reporters of the Camden Courier, quote, We heard some commotion and shooting. I saw him go into the barber shop, and I saw most of the rest of the killings. It was so sudden. I just couldn't believe it was happening. I was glued. Just couldn't get myself started. End quote. When Howard left the barber shop with a woman screaming, he made his way to Cohen's drugstore. On his way in, he met their prudential insurance man, James Hutton. He was also on his way into the drugstore, but paused to open the door for Howard until he saw the gun in Howard's hand. Quote, he saw the gun in my hand, and he turned around and refrained from going into the store. He didn't seem to know what to do, so I said, Excuse me, I am sorry. He didn't move, so I fired. Point blank. End quote. He fell to the ground outside of the drugstore. When Howard entered the drugstore, he didn't see any of his intended targets, so he began searching, making his way up the stairs to their living quarters. Quote, when I entered, I saw Mr. Cohen and his boy come out the window to the porch roof. I had seen Mrs. Cohen go into the closet and shut the door. I fired three shots into the closet. I heard her still hollering, so I opened the door, and she was on the floor. So I fired into her face and head. End quote. He heard the woman's mother phoning the police, so he went into the room and shot her. The phone was still in her hand. 38-year-old Rose Cohen and her mother-in-law, 63-year-old Minnie Cohen, were now dead. Prior to hiding in the closet herself, she had reportedly pushed her 12-year-old son, Charlie, into a closet as well, saving his life. When Howard was recalling his story to the detectives, he did not remember shooting and killing 39-year-old Maurice Cohen. But when police arrived at the scene... He was found face down with a bullet in his back, having fallen from the balcony two stories up. Quote, it seems to me that since you are keeping after me on the point that I must have killed him. I know when I went to the rear room, Mr. Cohen and his boy were fleeing out of the window onto the rear of the porch, and the kid turned to the roof at the side. Mr. Cohen jumped off the roof. I thought he jumped to escape. You say he is dead. I must have fired at him at his back. I don't remember firing at him, end quote. He reloaded his weapon on the way out of the store. Stepping over the shot insurance man, a car was either slowing down or parked in front of the drugstore. Quote, All I can remember on that deal is when I looked at him, his car was moving slowly and he was looking at me. I assume he saw me come out of the store. He saw me with the gun in my hand. I fired through the window. I was very close, end quote. This passing driver was Alvin Day.
There were two men he saw going into the tavern and sent some bullets their way, but said he didn't hit anyone. He believed he saw someone looking at him from a window of an apartment, and he fired a shot into the window, striking the person. He didn't know it at the time, but it was that of two-year-old Thomas Hamilton who was playing with the curtains of the window at the wrong time. Howard then made his way to the tailor's shop. He was upset not to find the owner, Thomas Zagrino, so began to scour the place. In the rear of the shop he found a woman. He recognized that she worked there, so he killed her. This was the bride of the tailor, Helga Zagrino. They had been married only a month. He made his way to the American store, not really having a beef with anyone there, but he tried the door and it was locked. When asked why he chose to go there, he said, quote, I wanted to enter, to shoot anyone in the store, I guess, anyone at all, end quote. On the other side of that door, Earl Horner, the clerk, brought all the customers that were inside the door to hide behind the counter with him. They heard Unruh trying to get in, but breathed a sigh of relief when he turned and moved on. Howard would recall the manager of the American store's grocery, quote, had always been nice to me until a clerk that he hired had difficulty one time with me over some change, and since that time forward, the manager was never nice, end quote. Having to turn around from the American store, he crossed the street in front of a car stopped at a red light. Quote, I think I fired one at the driver, but I missed, and I saw blood running down the head of the boy, and I fired again at the driver and one at the woman nearest him. End quote. That was him confessing to killing all three passengers. Helen Wilson, 37, was the driver. Her mother was Emma Matlack, the passenger, and then young nine-year-old John, who was in the back seat and succumbed to his injuries later that day. From here, he took to the alley between the shoemaker's place and his apartment house. He cut through his own backyard and entered into a house of the Harry family. A woman, Madeline, and her 16-year-old son, Armand, were sitting in the kitchen when he pointed his gun and shot them. Armand, trying to protect his mother, was shot a second time in his other arm, and at this point, the gun was empty. So Howard clocked him over the head with the pistol, knocking him to the floor. Quote, I took all the Remington ammunition that I had. I think each clip had eight, and there was an extra for the chamber and 16 rounds in my pocket. End quote. He fired off 33 rounds. He ran out the front entrance and made his way to his own home. Quote, I ran out of bullets, so I went home. End quote. Here he waited for the sirens in the distance to close the gap and realized he was hiding in his own home. He placed his Rutger on the table and waited, never really having to have a situation or protocol in place for a walk of death as the officers showed up outside of 3202 River Avenue, they just opened fired. As near as I could tell, there was no return fire from the upstairs window. One very aggressive reporter, Philip Buxton from the Camden Evening Courier, supposedly looked up the home phone number of Unruh household and called it to literally get the inside scoop. And to his surprise, Howard answered. He started out with something light, you know, just wanting to get the conversation going, so he said, is this Howard? Perhaps a little surprised, he answered, Yes, this is Howard. What is the last name of the party you want? The reporter said, Unruh. I'm a friend, and I just want to know what they are doing to you. How many have you killed? Why are you killing people? 
The conversation was cut short when police hurled cans of tear gas into the apartment. That was it. Howard wasn't going to deal with that. Tear gas was the final straw. He went downstairs and exited out his back door with his hands behind his head. One officer had to know. He asked, What is the matter with you? You a psycho? To which Howard Unruh, now in handcuffs, calmly responded, quote, I am no psycho. I have a good mind. End quote. Side note. After the now famous reporter Buxton printed his phone conversation with the criminal, years later it was finally confessed that it was actually police officer Sid Nelson on the phone and not Howard at all. In 1964, Detective William E. Kelly made a sworn affidavit acknowledging that he and other officers went up to the Unruh apartment moments after Howard surrendered. He said, quote, I heard the phone ring and Officer Martin, Sid Nelson, answered the phone. I did not pay any attention to the conversation, but after he hung up and went downstairs into the cellar, I asked him who was on the phone, and he said, Some reporter that thought I was the guy that did the killing. This guy Unruh. Later, we both had a lot of fun when we read of the reporter calling the killer. End quote. Howard Unruh didn't put up a fight, but was taken to the station where he was interrogated for over two hours, answering honestly and unemotionally every question they put to him. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret with Bag of Bones. I just need to interrupt this episode for just a quick second to make a sincere request. I've discovered that the best way to help a podcast to grow is, firstly, by word of mouth. If you are enjoying the Bag of Bones content, be sure to tell your friends about it. And then secondly, is through our reviews. Same concept, you're telling others how much you enjoy listening to the podcast, but you're reaching people that you don't even know. And with every new rating and review, the podcast platforms will then share Bag of Bones with other possible listeners. So again, if you enjoy Bag of Bones content, please share your views with others by leaving a five-star rating and review that will entice others to give us a try. Thank you so much to those who have already done this, and thank you to those who are about to. Okay, okay, my time is up. Back to the show. Thank you! On the front page of the evening Camden Courier of September 6th, 1949, the top news story was, of course, the mass shooting now being referred to as the Walk of Death. Richard Crandall would lead the article with, quote, A Bible-reading former G.I. crazed because of an alleged affront ran amok in East Camden today, end quote. Again, from the Auckland Star, quote, Unruh was a master of repression. His neighbors considered him a quiet, unremarkable young man, leading a quiet, unremarkable life. He accompanied his mother to St. Paul's Evangelical Church every Sunday without fail and attend Monday night Bible classes where he was known as a keen student of the scriptures who would even mark his favorite passages for further study, End quote. Everyone was so completely shocked that their neighbor, many had known from his childhood, could commit such a dreadful crime. But this was a long time coming. In his journal, where he collected his grievances, the word retaliation appeared over 200 times. Before going out that morning, his mother Frida would recall that after he put his coat on, he went into the cellar and came back up, standing perfectly still in the living room. She said, It was almost as if he went into a trance, 
he was staring so intently. When she said something to him, he spun around and quote-unquote menaced her with a wrench. Frightened and concerned that her son no longer loved her, she ran from the home to her friend's house, the Pinners. She would later tell reporters that he looked at her like he didn't know who she was. Frida Unruh had returned to her home later that day, unaware Howard came in the back door and ran up to his room. Suddenly, a crowd began to gather on the street and police began shouting. Reporters say she emerged from the home in a daze, knowing the commotion was about her son, but not knowing the details of what had just transpired, or that he was even waiting for his fate on the floor above. A friend came through the crowd and took her away to safely to Frida's sister's house so she could be seen by a doctor and shielded from the horrible events. That's when they opened fire on the apartment. Forty-five minutes and a slew of bullets, Howard appeared. Former police officer Harry Tracy would recall, quote, A lot of people criticized us for not killing him, but the way he surrendered, well, he had no fight left. We shouted, stick your hands up higher, he did it. How the hell can you shoot a guy that has no fight in him? End quote. The thousands of spectators had gathered, demanding a lynching right then and there, but officers held them at bay and escorted the compliant prisoner to the city hall. Simultaneously, the injured and the dead were being cared for as the neighborhood reeled with speculation. The Auckland Star would report on the contents of Howard's room, writing, quote, He surrounded himself with reminders of his army days. Apart from the stamp album and train sets, a book on astronomy, and volumes concerned with what a detective termed sex hygiene, his bedroom was a shrine to war and weapons. The walls were decorated with crossed bayonets and pictures of armored artillery in action. He had books on weaponry and military strategy, clips of thirty thirty cartridges for rifle use, a pistol, ashtrays made from German shell casings, and a host of other war souvenirs. In the cellar of the house, he set up a shooting range and practiced regularly. End quote. The detective asked point-blank when he sat across from the young man in the interview room, quote, You realized, didn't you, at the time you shot these people, that you were committing murder? He replied, Yes, sir. I guess he wanted to know where they stood from the get-go. And so, the interrogation began. The lead detective, which would be Mitchell Cohen, no relation to the murdered drugstore Cohens, would get comfortable and ask, Howard, what did you do last night, Monday, September 5th, 1949? Quote, I went to the movies in Philadelphia, he responded. He would say that he stayed at the movie theater for several hours watching the same movie over and over again. He couldn't remember the name of the movie, I know how that is, but he remembered Barbara Stanwyck was one of the stars. He made his way straight home and told the detectives he changed into pajamas and went to bed. But he didn't sleep. He plotted and planned, and stewed over things that had been upsetting him. The detective asked him when he planned to take care of things, and Howard replied, 9.30. Is there any reason you picked that particular time? They would ask innocently. He answered the obvious reason, because the stores would be open by then. His original plan was meant to use a machete, he had this weapon picked out specifically for the druggist's wife, Mrs. Rose Cohen. He had a special kind of loathing for her. Quote, 
She was always talking about me and very belligerent towards me, and seemed to take pleasure in bawling me out in front of people in public. One time she told a woman she could see something was wrong with me just by looking at my eyes, end quote. Before he joined the army, he was dating a girl he met from church. He was polite and respectful, but he was not interested in holding hands or even kissing her. He claims he only dated her because it was what was expected of him, but felt it was just a mask. He would break up with her in a letter he sent while overseas. When his relationship with her came up in the interrogation, he was honest but aloof. He showed no emotion about the girl at all. He was asked, quote, Did her kisses make you feel passionate? Did you have sexual desires for this woman? Have you had sexual relations with her? And finally they asked, Have you had sexual relations with any woman? All of the questions were replied with a negative response. He would explain that he was far more interested in the events of the war building up and unfolding than he was in any relationship. The Auckland Star, in their publication of the event in September of 1949, wrote this, quote, In the course of the painstaking interrogation of Unruh after the massacre, his reply to one of the least probing questions led to one of the most significant discoveries. He was asked if he'd ever been sick or in the hospital and answered that he had once been treated for gonorrhea. Mitchell Cohen, remembering his earlier assertion that he had never slept with a woman, asked him how he came to contract the disease. Unruh replied that he had been an active homosexual since 1946. His first homosexual encounter apparently took place in a Philadelphia cinema when a man whom he'd never before met masturbated him during the film. Thereafter, he became highly promiscuous and, with his customary attention to detail, kept a diary of his sexual encounters listing names, dates, and places. Although he confined his activities to Philadelphia and even rented a room to ensure maximum discretion, he became convinced that people of his home community knew of his secret. The tailor circulated the story that he saw me go down on someone in an alley one time, Unruh alleged. End quote. By the spring of 1948, he was no longer accompanying his mother to church on Sundays or attending Monday night Bible classes. His years of study and what Dr. Harold McGee described as, quote, obsessive rumination concerning his relations to the deity and his responsibility for right and wrong behavior had done little but awaken him to grand biblical themes of apocalypse, themes he could readily adapt to legitimize in his own mind his mass murderous mission. Another view would say he suffered from, quote, vague, half-conscious feelings of fear, anxiety, and disgust in his dealings with girls his own age, end quote. And still others blamed his time and exposure to the war. And even though he sat patiently through all the interviews and tests, the question is still up for debate on whether there were signs before he signed up for the army, or was it something that was new following his service? In 1974, the now Judge Mitchell Cohen would look back over that day's interrogation, still in disbelief at Unruh's behavior. He'd say, quote, He showed no reluctance at all to talk to me, and we must have talked one and a half to two hours. A court reporter took his confession. It was a horrible, revolting narrative. He gave it cold, cut and dry. There was no attempt to conceal or be furtive. 
he didn't seem to experience the normal relief of getting it off his chest. There was no remorse, no tears. There was a lack of all emotion. He was completely cooperative. He answered all the questions. End quote. When they finally released him from questioning, he stood up revealing a pool of blood on the chair he'd been sitting in. He never mentioned being uncomfortable or hurting once the entire interview. Judge Cohen would recall, quote, What really convinced me that he must be terribly insane was when he got up after two hours and his chair was covered in blood, a considerable amount of blood. He had been shot and wasn't even aware of it, end quote. He was taken to Cooper Hospital, where some of his victims were also being treated, and he went in for immediate surgery. They were unable to remove the bullet lodged in his right hip, so there it stayed. After he had been patched up, he was sent over to the New Jersey Hospital for the Insane, which is now Trenton Psychiatric Hospital. Here he was given a room in the Maximum Security Building. Since he would have to convalesce for two weeks, Detective Mitchell Cohen said, quote, It will benefit all concerned. We will get the full and complete results of all possible study. End quote. Unruh was not diagnosed as insane at the time, but following his healing of the gunshot wound, psychiatrists would be able to do a full workup around their patient. Charges were filed for 13, quote, willful and malicious slayings with malice aforethought, and three counts of atrocious assault and battery. It's almost while the battery of tests were going on to find out if he was insane or not, they just kind of forgot about him. He's tucked away. He can't do any more harm. Howard's father, Samuel, was charged with paying $15 per month for Howard's care for the rest of his life. He never had to serve trial, never had to face the victim's families, those that did extensive interviews and tests on Unruh were divided, two saying that he was not insane and should stand trial. But the final report handed down was, yes, he is insane under the paranoid schizophrenic umbrella, quote, caught in a world of his own delusions and separated from reality. His mental illness had come upon him slowly and was not caused by combat, end quote. He would spend the rest of his days at Trenton Psychiatric Hospital. In 1980, the indictments were dismissed after a judge ruled that he had been denied a speedy trial. Side note, if this type of crime occurred in today's time, his paranoia would have been acknowledged, but in most cases he would have been declared sane because of his ability to understand that he was committing murder, and that it was wrong. It is believed he would be declared sane enough to stand trial and most likely do jail time. Charles Cohen, the son of the drugstore owner whose life was saved by being hidden in a closet, paid close attention to the incarceration of Howard Unruh. He has opposed all attempts of ease security restrictions on Unruh as he grows old. He'd tell reporters, quote, I don't want anyone to see him as a poor old man, Cohen said. He is a mass killer and has outlived most of the families that he destroyed. I'm just waiting for the call that he's dead, and I'll spit on his grave, and that will be it. End quote. But that day did not come, as Cohen died one month before Unruh. Side note, in a 2018 Parkland, Florida high school shooting, 
17-year-old Carly Novell survived the attack by hiding in a closet. Her grandfather was Charles Cohen, the only surviving member of the Cohen family. He survived by hiding in a closet. Seventeen of her classmates and teachers were killed in this school shooting. A reporter for the New York Times, Richard Goldstein, reported that Unruh's public defender, James H. Klein, disclosed that Unruh spent most of his time sleeping and watching television with a bit of collecting stamps on occasion. He was kept under maximum security until 1993 when he was moved across the property to the geriatric unit. As it was, he lived in the mental hospital for 60 years until his declining health resulted in his death on October 19, 2009, at 88 years old. He rarely received visitors other than his public defender, James Klein, and his mother, and when she died in 1983, no one came at all. It's said that his last words in any public interview were said almost in passing, again with no emotion, just as if he were stating another fact. He said, quote, I had been thinking about killing them for some time. I'd have killed a thousand if I had bullets enough. End quote. Thank you for being with me on this week's Bag of Bones podcast episode. Be sure to reach out on the socials. You can find us over at Instagram and Facebook at Bag of Bones Podcast. I'd love to chat. I'm Elizabeth Bougere. Until next week, then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougere, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougere.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougere and DCT Enterprises.